I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> the Lost Boys and Lost Men of Taika Waititi. This is a special show about the recurring themes in the personal work of this supremely talented Kiwi. We'll probably reference Thor Ragnarok and what we do in the shadows as well in passing, but the main focus is going to be the four that we haven't yet covered in a full show. So that's Eagle vs. Shark from 2007, Boy from 2010, Hunt for the Wilder People from 2016, and Jojo Rabbit from 2019. Sharon, you pointed out that he seems to have this three-year cycle. Yeah which just appears to be consistent across that. And now that we've said that, he'll break that and do like one every one year. (laughs) That's not counting the uh, other two we mentioned. So let's explore all of them and see what they have in common, because from watching his entire body of work back to back, we found plenty. And rather than confusingly jumping back and forth for all these films in turn, we will be focusing on one at a time. Like, we can't expect that most of you will have seen all of these, especially not Boy. I hadn't even heard of Boy until I bought it. But this way, people can listen to the segments about the films that they've seen. Nah, 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 nah. No? I think this is worth listening to all the way through getting full spoilers and then going watching those films you'll definitely appreciate them more that's a fair point seriously this is one of those primer courses also i think this is going to be uh hunter and amy from the two shrinks pods favorite of this year that we do (laughs) (laughs) because we got some psychology going on here we do indeed okay So for each of these uh, throughout, we're going to be asking a consistent series of six questions, allowing the thematic threads to pass through each until by the end, you should have a quite beautiful, funny, sad mental tapestry woven together of four stories about one story. Hey, fool. Sucker. You foolish, foolish sucker. Hello? Hello, is Eric there, please? Welcome to Maisie Boy. It's an invitation to my party. You get to dress as your favourite animal. Cool. Do you want a kiss? Yep. I brought you here today to ask you a very special question. Lily. Will you be my girlfriend? Yes. Yes, I will. Awesome. I need to go home. What do you have to do? Kill a man. He's going to be home soon. Guess who's going to be forming the welcoming party? You? You got it, girl. What did he do? Him and some of the other guys from school used to gang up on me. I used to be a bit of a nerd. How many boyfriends have you had? Three. 
any girlfriends have you had? That's irrelevant. I have two things to say. One, I'm leaving tomorrow. Two, that could change. Shark. Yep. I almost came as a shark actually, but then I realized that an eagle's slightly better. Do you want to leave a message for him? Tell him that justice is waiting for him. Okay, Justin. Thank you. Bye bye. No, justice. Justice. Eagle vs. Shark was written and directed by Waititi. It focuses, unlike the other three, on a young woman named Lily, who lives in Wellington, New Zealand, which is uh, Waititi's hometown, uh, with her kind, supportive brother, Damon. They are both lonely nerds, and Lily whiles away her 20s in a fast food restaurant, pining for a young man named Jared played by Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords. You may also have seen him in Moana. He plays the shiny crab. You wouldn't have seen him in Moana, but you would have heard, heard him. him in Moana. Okay, you may have seen him briefly. In, in, I suppose he's the villain in Men in Black 3. Anyone remember that film? Exactly. <laughs> to us, as viewers, Jared is an awkward, evasive, selfish, rude, crass git. To Lily, he's fascinating, and as she wangles her way into his fancy dress party, the two initiate a clumsy romantic relationship. This hits the road as Lily travels with Jared out to his remote rural hometown where he was raised, and where he plans to do battle with his school bully. Okay, so... Question one, which we'll be asking for all of these films, and it's always going to be the easiest. Who is the lost boy in this film? Jared. Jared. <laughs> Jared is the only lost boy who's not actually the age of a boy, mm-hmm. at least as the focus of the film. The other three are very clearly about young boys. Mm-hmm. This is about a young boy trapped in the body of an older man who hasn't had the opportunity to grow up yeah. in any way. Mm-hmm. Also, I think if you watch it, it's fairly clear that Jared is... Well, he has something, and it has letters, and he's on the spectrum in uh, at least somewhere. And also, the more you find out about his upbringing, the more sorry you feel for him. Like, Jesus, he never had a chance of, ha- of, of being well-adjusted. The next question is, who is the lost man, and what is his weakness? Also, Jared. Also, Jared. <laughs> and his weakness is uh, that he's immature. <laughs> as is I mean, the weakness of most of the lost men. That's a way of framing it. I would say the there is another lost man in this, and that is Jared's father. Yep, I have that and too. And it is his inability to connect with his younger son... Because Jared had an older brother mm-hmm. who is played in photos and Oh, video. actually, yeah. Contributing to this particular uh, question, let's just jump forward to the next question to incorporate the answer to that question. Is there an absent mother figure or someone else who is missed and mourned? Okay, so... Maybe that should be the second because it then always is going to lead into, into the, to the other second. The okay. Man, yeah. okay. So Jared had an older brother who was called Frank... Yes. I think. And he is played in photos and video footage by Taika Waititi. And Frank, when 
Jared tells Lily about him very briefly. He says that he died in an attack by a cow or something. No, no, no. He says his mother was killed. Oh, his mother was she killed. She was kicked in the head by a cow. Right. Uh, his brother saved children from a burning school. That's it. Yeah. So he has lionized and, and um, idealized his uh, lost brother. And it is apparent from the way that Jared's father behaves towards him that Frank was his favorite. By, by, uh, by a country by mile. most of the mileage of the North Island. <laughs> Indeed. So Frank was a runner and his and their father appears to have continually pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed him to achieve. Mm. And Jared was completely neglected in this process. It transpires later on in the film that Frank did in fact not die by saving children from a burning building, but that he killed himself. Or at least it is heavily implied. They go out to a cliff and their father says to Lily... I don't want to go up there! I don't want to go up there. That's where Frank died. Well, then then, uh, it turns out Jared also has a little daughter. She's like tin. Mm. And uh, he made his contribution something like ten years and nine months ago. uh, And very rarely comes back to visit her from the looks of it. Yeah. Uh, But uh, she says to Lily, whom she makes an awkward kind of friendship with... She tells Lily about uh, what happened with Frank. Yeah. So it's not implied. It's it's definitely it is stated. Text. Okay. Um, the the mother of the little girl, by the way, appears to have been Frank's girlfriend. Yeah. the The implication is that in a fit of grief, she uh, confided in Jared, and Jared probably for the only other time in his life aside from Lily uh, actually got to have sex and through that the little girl was born and he responded by running away to Wellington Um, the mother who he says was kicked in the head by a cow is not dead at all she left them some time ago and is apparently alive and well and living in Australia there's a lot of dead mothers in this series. There is, there is. And it, it, all of so these... So it, it, it starts to become like, oh, his poor mum. Oh, no, wait, I'm thinking of the other one's poor mum. Exactly, yeah. But this is the one that he says is dead for a lot of yeah. the story. But then it turns out it's not. Either way, don't piss off local cows. You well, might get kicked in the head. Indeed. But the the emotional state of being lost that yeah. Jared's father is carrying is around apparently being resentful at his wife leaving and in utterly frozen grief over Frank's death, which he still does not seem to have dealt with. Yeah, I put uh, total emotional and communicative shutdown. He sits in a wheelchair the whole way through the film, barely says anything, while uh, Jared spars badly with his brother and sister-in-law mm. who have a side uh, business sister and brother-in-law sister and brother-in-law who have a side business making shell suits and selling avon style makeup yes sell, not making but selling cheaply bought shell suits and cheaply bought makeup kits it seems like they collect things that fall off the back of lorries yeah and then flog them locally it, it's honestly watching this film made me go oh fuck don't go to new zealand to cure your depression the the chances of finding yourself in the back end of nowhere and actually finding yourself totally immobile in every possible kind of way is still definitely there and it's it's important to not romanticize places as the be-all end-all of escapes which is not necessarily the intention of the film 
but it is a good way of illustrating that there's uh, dead end places everywhere that, that that's not a condemnation of the people who live there no, or a or condemnation the of the people who leave or the country or anything like that it's just kind of a it's a, it's a byproduct of how we live in cities and in countryside towns absolutely yeah. and settlements and farmsteads and barely any things mm. it's uh, it, there are places which have kind of dropped off the map or were never on there in the first place and probably never will be and it feels like Jared is lost in the wilderness between a city and one of these places and Lily who is a wonderful person the whole way through the film. Like, back at the fast food restaurant where she works, nobody appreciates her. Everyone treats her like shit. Everyone thinks she's weird and strange. And she and her brother Damon are, like, you know, creative, and they make little drawings, and they, you know, create songs and uh, and, and write um, poems, and they they support each other and are kind to each other. And... There's other departed uh, mothers there because they're both their parents they're are dead. They're orphans, yeah, and the, but they live together mm. and they are clearly very uh, caring of each other and in a way that isn't double-edged. There's yeah. no there's no needling going on or yeah. or sort of the, what you would usually expect from a brother sister relationship. They don't even they tease each gently other. Gently rib each other. They're yeah, just none of that. like they tell jokes to each other and they're a bit crap, mm. but it's. So it's the thing that keeps you going through this movie because the poisonous relationships that Jared is surrounded by, you're like, oh, but Lily's going to be okay because she's mm. got her brother. There's, and there's and that's least, why she and he are okay. Absolutely. There's at least two or three occasions where Lily is struggling mm. and she makes connection with Damon either through a conversation or she phones him or even a voicemail message. Mm. And it makes it okay for her to go that little bit further. Yeah. Waititi referred to himself in the commentary for Wilder People as the New Zealand Michel Gondry. And this movie has got some little animated sequences that are incredibly charming uh, and utilise stop motion. And, uh, you know, that absolutely is clearly I love Michel Gondry. There's a lot of uh, Wes Anderson in there as well. Yes. That turns up, I think, the most in Jojo Rabbit later on with mm. any slow motion Boy Scouts running from a perfect side on view while 70s rock plays. That's a Wes Anderson shot. Mm-hmm. This is true. But uh, his... If you've seen uh, Ragnarok, uh, and if, especially if you've seen um, What We Do in the Shadows, you'll kind of get an idea as to his uh, more sort of oddball personal style. He has this um, quirkiness. And his films start out funny... And then really hit you at some point. Like it, the, the, each of them has got this like stabbing slow knife, which just gets to you, and it starts to twist, and you feel like it's going to be unbearable. And then he relieves you. Mm. And after watching all of these, we watched Muriel's Wedding, and I hadn't seen that since I was in my teens. And I was like, oh, this is going to be great fun, and it was horrible. <laughs> And there wasn't that sense of relief. And it just kept stabbing me over and over again. And there was nothing funny at all. And I was like, I have completely misremembered this film. And at the end, I was just like, if it weren't for ABBA, I'd be dead. <laughs> but Toni Collette was good for her one of her first her performances. Her performance was great, yeah. yeah. I also like the, um, the girl who plays her friend. Yeah. Yeah, it was a great dramatic performance, yeah. Mm. But just that that's being stuck with a toxic, horrible family and... 
it goes from bad to worse. But there's like there isn't that the the, the something about the way Jermaine Clement and he's this is the only film of, uh, that he's in of these four. Obviously, he's uh, you know major character in what we do in the shadows. But something about his his kind of he has delusions of it's not exactly grandeur of being an artist and creator, and all of his stuff is like things that you'd find in a teenage boy's, a very young teenage boy's bedroom, taped together from garbage. And they are kind of creative, but it's like, what, you have to move on from this, please. And especially the way he overcompensates in his projections in the the first act of the film. He acts as though his life is a cornucopia of interesting things, Mm. but he's very aloof and evasive of of Lily. Like, he doesn't want anything to do with her. And she's like, you know, do you want some free cheese and your burger? And he's like, no, I can't eat cheese. <laughs> but, uh, you know, she starts to strike her conversations and he starts to go, and just and, and run away practically. And like I said, she wangles her way in because he actually gives her an invite to his party to a girl who doesn't give a shit about him or Lily. And she throws it in the trash can and finds a bunch of pieces of paper that all say Lily that were pulled, one of which was pulled out of a hat to elect which person was going to have to be let off from this fast food job. And it's this, again, it's this early heartbreaking moment. But because she's not a sad sack, she just goes, oh, bugger it. I'm going to take this uh, this invite to this party where you've got to dress as your favorite animal and I'm going to, I'm going to infiltrate dressed as a shark. And it's Lily's own creativity and Lily's own uh, ability to keep pushing through the mire that actually gets us through to Jared eventually and and we find something Mm. sort of worth caring about beyond just pitying. The difference between the two of them in this I think is Jared is stuck in the way that his entire family is stuck. He doesn't have anybody around him to give him any examples of how to actually move on and progress from where he is. Lily may not be moving much, but she is not stuck. When things do get uh, locked into place in a negative way, like you said, she is a creative enough thinker that she can come up with something, even if it seems like clutching at straws at the time, that is going to give her something to be able to, to move out of the position that she's in. And the uh, the process by which she is continually there for Jared, it would have been very easy for the film to descend into, well, this is just a girl doing emotional labour for a guy who who is incapable of doing his own. But it works out not like that because eventually Lily draws quite a hard line in the sand. She's staying at the house with the family. She is engaging with the rest of them to an extent in a way that Jared is obviously incapable or, or unwilling to do. In a meek and willing way. Yeah, she's sweet and they seem to be responding to her quite positively. But when it becomes apparent that Jared is not uh, appreciating So what now she's... the sister is played by Rachel House who is a repeating yes. ca- uh, character actress played uh, playing throughout the uh, Waititi series. She is. She was in Jojo Rabbit but her scene got cut. Bollocks! She had she had one um, speech about the Americans coming in and saving everybody. And Bad they, idea. They decided to cut. Always it keep Rachel House. But she did. She was on set a lot, and apparently she was a, an acting coach for cool. um, the kids. Ah, so okay. nice. she was. Her presence was definitely there. Okay. But the yeah the the 
way that Lily sort of draws this line in the sand is Jared has dumped her and appears to be trying to get back together with the mother of his little girl. Who has who no has interest. Who has no interest in him at all. Um, and Lily basically says, right, two things. One, I'm, I'm leaving on the bus, on bus tomorrow. tomorrow. Two, that could change. And then she gets up and walks away. Mm. It's up to him. She's like, she's come that close, but she will not go that last inch. She mm. throws that gauntlet down and it is up to him to cross that last barrier. Mm. Notably, this is after he's finally confronted the bully that he's been harassing on the phone, who is uh, cheery and confused, as is, as is his family. Mm. Uh, and when it finally happens, it turns out that the guy, much like his father, is also in a wheelchair. And Jared feels deflated because he wanted there to be a big epic battle that he's he's built up in his mind he's been practicing his nunchucks he's, mm. it's this film is very similar to napoleon dynamite if you're american yes yeah it is in just in terms of of the the, the self delusion going on here notably the film isn't ableist because the guy in the wheelchair is like he's sad that he realizes he's really hurt jared to a degree that has lasted with him his entire life but it's, it doesn't say, well, he can't fight because he's in a wheelchair. Because then Jared spitefully and shittily attacks him from behind. And then he ends up leaping out of the chair and pummeling Jared on the pavement in a pathetic playground fight. But ultimately illustrating that just being in a wheelchair is not enough to make him non-combatant. Well, yes, there is that. I mean, I think the... the, the... Also, don't hit people from behind with nunchucks unless you're a ninja. <laughs> the, honestly, the list of things that Jared should not do that he does mm. is... And if you're a ninja, you want to just get a mouthful of caltrops <laughs> and they go in the face. And spray them in someone's face. Um, I, I think... It... Mouthful of caltrops is our ninja bachelor party cover band. Very good. Um, <laughs> yeah. When Jared has been pushing this whole thing about wanting to fight this bully, I think there is an element there of he wants to fight his dad. Yes. And this Maybe is... the him being in a wheelchair is a bit too on the nose? Well, yes, but I wonder if that's maybe why Jared eventually decides he has to go through with this, mm. because it's it, there's, there's a lot of idealising of potential replacement father figures in these films, and while Jared doesn't really seem to do that... He is battling against his father's idealisation of Frank. Yeah. He is battling against his father's inability to connect with him on any level at all. Mm. And he takes it all out on this poor guy who has been trying to initiate fights with for years. Yeah. And they all kind of plat together to give him this confrontational moment that goes nowhere. Mm. It doesn't achieve anything. It doesn't give him any kind of resolution. It's impotent rage. Exactly. <laughs> and it's demonstrated so well. But it does then put him in a position of, right, that didn't work. What are you going to do now? So the uh, the finale of the movie is he turns up at the bus stop, uh, prompted by Lily, and uh, gives her some lilies. And she's like, oh, I'm named Lily. And he's like, oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and they've clearly been wrenched out of someone's garden. <laughs> uh, but then the... Well, the- no, you get lilies for a funeral. 
That's true. He, it's like he walked into a florist and just picked up the first bunch of flowers that he saw without putting any thought into mm. it whatsoever. To a wonderful mum. <laughs> exactly. Anyway. Pow, super mum. Um, but yeah, the, the finale is they're on the bus going back to Wellington and it's like they start playing Spot the Cow and it's a, a, a little nod and a wink to The Graduate. The End of The Graduate by Mike Nichols, after this incredibly impulsive, you know, Elaine, Elaine, like, you know, stopping a wedding and then I'm going to leave this wedding and my oppressive family and we're going to just get away on this bus. There's this really great final shot where they're sort of like, ha, 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 ha. And they kind of realize, oh, we don't really know each other that well. And like, I don't know what's going to happen next. And it's Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. It's a great shot and it's a great kind of uneasy conclusion to uh, to that film. Whereas this, they're on the bus and they're, they're spotting things in a way that Jared's never opened up before and he actually seems a little bit more like Damon mm. at that point. So it's like, you know what? This could kind of work. Mm. So it's a very them, positive step forward. Instead of them sitting with that sort of very fixed gap between them, yeah. they're sitting... next to each other and they move slightly closer Mm. together as the journey progresses. Which obviously is even more beautifully visually realised earlier, slightly before that, before she says that could change. Jared is sulking in his sleeping bag uh, outside near his tent and she gets into a sleeping bag next to him and just is there to comfort him and then his sleeping bag in stop motion scurries off down the hill and over to the cliffside and her sleeping bag in stop motion scurries after him and she's just there to support him. Mm. And to her credit, she's not just there to support him and he definitely has to change in order to actually be even vaguely closer to the sort of person who deserves Lily. The next one is Boy, which is set in New Zealand in 1984. And for that, I'm actually going to go straight to Wikipedia for the details on this particular uh, film. Kia ora, my name is Boy, and welcome to my interesting world. My favourite person is Michael Jackson. Want to see some Michael Jackson dance moves? My favourite subjects are art, social studies. I'll kick both your nuts off. And you'll have none. And Michael Jackson. I have a six-year-old brother called Rocky. He's got powers. Hey, boy. Hey, boy. Hey, boy. Thank you, boy. I'm named after my dad. He's overseas doing some pretty important stuff. I mean, you're a liar. Your dad's in jail for robbery. People call me a dumb honky all the time. I don't go around punching them out. Why not? Because they use your children. Who are you? Boy. Alright. I'm your dad. Oh. Think you can handle having the Incredible Hulk for a day? How long was he here for? Dunno. No, she was my dad. What are you looking for? Treasure. Can you stop calling me dad? Sounds weird. I'm like a more than you. You don't know anything. I'm all alone on this planet. Sorry I am like I am sometimes. Got people trying to bring me down, you know. The government mainly. 
Blue Eye Paul Jervis. You got a girlfriend. There's this girl that really likes me a lot, but I don't know if I want to, you know, get involved. Mm, mm. Well, don't get her pregnant, that's all. So, in 1984, Alamein, known as Boy, is an 11-year-old living in Waihau Bay in the Tairawiti Gisborne region of New Zealand on a small farm with his grandmother, his young brother Rocky, and several cousins. So we're going to call him Boy. Boy spends his time dreaming of Michael Jackson, who in 1984 was the biggest thing ever, hanging out with his friends Dallas and Dynasty and trying to impress Chardonnay, a girl at his school who, as it turns out, is not all that into him or bright or and hasn't got that much going on. Talking to his pet goat and making up wild stories about his estranged and imprisoned father, Alamein. Rocky, meanwhile, his brother, is a quiet, odd child who believes he has dangerous superpowers because his mother died giving birth to him. That answers several of our questions all in one go. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> one day, Boy and Rocky's grandmother leaves for a funeral in Wellington, leaving Boy in charge of the house and taking care of the other children. Boy is then surprised to see his father and two other men arrive at his farm. So I won't go through the rest of the plot as it is, because obviously we did quite well sort of going through uh, Eagle versus Shark. Alamein Senior is played by Taika Waititi and he is a fucking scumbag but at the same time has a kind of a boyish charm and a kind of a criminal sensibility that young boys desperate for a father figure might find appealing Mm, yeah well he is like Jared he is very underdeveloped in himself he is a a a boy in a man's situation Mm. And he left, it appears, while the kid's mother was pregnant with Rocky, he was not there when she died. And he never came back, having found out that she had passed away. So Rocky's never met him. Yeah. Alamein, it would appear, as in, sorry, boy met him when he was very, very young, but yeah. his memories of him are sketchy at best. He was three. Yeah. And uh, there are various shots of he and his mother um, scattered throughout the movie. They're so rare, just him and his mother together, that it's like it's the few precious memories he has. Yeah, yeah. And no memories of him and his father that I can recall. No, I don't, I don't remember seeing any pictures of them. I, th- I think there is one picture of his father and mother together, mm. but I don't think any of the kids are around. It's notable, by the way, that Boy went on to become the highest grossing New Zealand film at the local box office. So even though it, it's not really known overseas, mm. it was a huge deal there. Yeah. And I think that's specifically because it deals with... Uh, a family who are non-white mm. and of, well, it's a, a Maori com- Maori uh, community extraction. Yeah, yeah. it's like a, a far less stressful once were warriors in terms yeah. of of, yeah. Uh, of of men separated from that culture. Mm. And there there are subtle but very clear implications about what is expected of masculinity in this society. In, not in this society specifically, but in the, in the community that the, the kids are growing up in. Mm. What is expected of them both at home and in the school where it's... It, the school that they attend is very ramshackle and there are a handful of white kids there, but it seems very apparent that this is 
this is where the poor kids go to get educated. And the teachers have zero expectations of them and are shitty to them. Alamein Senior has delusions of being some kind of drug kingpin uh, from crappy marijuana deals he used to do. Mm. He's convinced that there's money hidden somewhere that he had to bury before he left, and he's looking for it. And uh, he has some shady mates, Ratman and Pig, just some guys. It's like the guys in um, Devil's Backbone. They're yes. just there for the money. Yeah. You know that the second they find it, They're they'll hightail it. just yeah. hightail it out of there. Absolutely. Or if things get too hot. Yeah. And they do. But yeah, uh, Alamein convinces the boys to call him Shogun. And he builds a little crappy throne in his garage. Mm. So he can sit there and pretend that he's uh, Wilson Fisk. Yes, indeed. But Boy has been idealising his father for so long that when he turns up, he is unable or unwilling to recognise his crapness as a father, as a, as a role model, as a, uh, somebody who might be capable of taking care of them. Mm. He, he just, he fails on all counts. Yeah. And, and Boy can't see that. Yeah, because he has no positive male influence. Yeah. Uh, another one of my questions is, uh, is there anybody else in the film who is a key figure who has a positive or negative influence. Like, for example, Lily's brother Damon was a positive influence in Eagle vs. Shark, whereas Jared's sister, played by Rachel House, is a negative influence. Unsportive, tormenting. It's not fair. Where am I supposed to sleep? Pitch the tent. I don't want to sleep in a damn tent. This is typical. No one ever thinks about me. It's because you're a loser. You're a loser, bitch. Cockhole. Bitch. Cockhole. Bitch. Cockhole. Bitch. Cockhole. Stop calling me cockhole, bitch. Cockhole. Uh, for this one, I have Rachel House again. Mm-hmm. Yep. Who is uh, Boy's aunt. Auntie Gracie. Yeah. Yeah. There's a very key scene where Boy has borrowed, stolen his dad's jacket and um, took a little bit of money out of it. It's like five bucks or something. No, he finds the money that's buried in the field and he pockets a 20. A 20. Then uh, starts acting like a little gangster and, uh, you know, buys a whole bunch of uh, ice pops for his friends. Uh, while wearing the jacket. And, and just like, he goes into the, his aunt's shop, drags the candy jar across in a kind of, I will buy all your finest candy. And then Alamein drives up and you're like, okay, so he's going to go, hey, give me my jacket back or something. Just just behave like a guy who uh, whose son has taken his jacket and be proportional about it. He embarrasses the kid, thwacks his uh, ice pop out of his hand pretty much beats the shit out of him as he wrenches the jacket off, screams questions regarding where he got the money for the ice pops. And then the aunt runs out, this is Rachel House again, uh, being a sort of a defensive, um, fiery fertility goddess. And, uh, you know, just just saying he's a piece of shit and that he should never have come back. She's the sister of the mother who's died. Yeah, and the way she... Runs out and effectively gets ready to stick herself between Alamein and his son, if necessary. Kind of implies she maybe had to do that more than once for her sister. And she chases him into his car and he drives away. And he drives away shouting something so shitty out of the window. Like, I know you are, but what am I? Or something. It's like, what the fuck, you child? (sighs) It's, uh, It's an embarrassing... 
and crushing scenario for Boy to be trapped in at that point. Mm-hmm. And it starts off a, a, a series of events, including the goat eating the money, then uh, a party going wrong, then Alamein accidentally running over and killing the goat, mm-hmm. and then driving off, leaving Boy and Rocky to try to ease the goat in his final moments of passing. That had you crying. It did, yeah. And then they have to bury it. Yeah. Uh, but another missing mother figure, and I don't know if this was intentional. This is just my interpretation, and I think I've got Moana all up in my brain, featuring Rachel House as the grandmother. Taika Waititi was involved, I think, in some of the original writing of that? Uh, yes, I believe yeah. so. Yeah. And that is that Boy repeatedly looks out over the ocean, looks out over uh, cliffs. The, there's also the, the cliffside in um, Eagle vs. Shark. And there's also a very key bridge in the film which keeps coming back up. And at one point, Boy uh, drops off the back of it uh, into the water. And is, uh, he's saved, luckily, but it's at a point of absolute low. And there's this... I don't think that it's, a, it's an accident that the, the Maori people came from the sea and that's a strong connection to a maternal force and an emotional force that all of these lost boys and lost men can't reconnect with. Yeah, yeah. They're also, New Zealand itself is a group of islands, Mm. two of them very large, but they are surrounded by water. And it's a a cradling thing Mm. for the country itself to sit in that, like you say, that very maternal energy. Yeah. But there's also the uh, the grandmother, who is who turns up at the very end of the film, but is absent for most of it. Mm. She's as as you said, she's gone to Wellington for a, to be present at a funeral, and is going to be gone for some days. I think she's gone for a couple of weeks in the end. But her presence is, she is the person who is able to sit with death in a way that Alamein could not. She's there, we, we see flashes of Rocky's birth and uh, his mother lying there afterwards. And the grandmother, who is presumably her mum, yeah. is sitting not there, presumably. holding Rocky, singing to him, Just giving him that really essential early support when she must have been going through major loss herself. And that she is able to do that for other people is one of the most positive examples of behaviour that Boy has. And when he finally kind of clicks to how bad a role model Alamein is, he slips back into the the role of responsibility that he's been asked to take on. He has been neglecting his cousins and Rocky up to this point because Alamein won't look after them. He kind of, the implication is, this is not what men do. Masculinity is not about cooking and cleaning and caring for the children. So he refuses to do it. But then towards the end, he goes back into that role and you see him tuck the little ones up to, up in, in bed and making them food and setting the table and, and all the kids pitch in, but he is clearly leading it. 
And after all of that, there's a moment at the very end when Alamein comes back and is sitting in at... his shitty little shogun chair. He, yeah. Uh, he, he turns up at, at Rocky and Boy's mother's grave and they all sit down next to it. There's not really much that's said, but there's just this moment of unspoken acceptance. And it is not There's dissimilar. a point that comes in between. After the he sat in his shogun chair, Boy turns up and slaps the shit out of him. Yeah, okay, all right. Reprimanding him for disappearing when yeah. he did and effectively saying, be a father. And it works somehow. It's percussive <laughs> maintenance, but it works. It, well, I was going to because say- his his shitty buddies have have left now. The mm-hmm. money's been ripped apart and eaten by a goat. There's nothing else for him but to start growing. Yeah. Kind of like uh, Jared. Yeah, like well- he's had everything that he decided was going to be his destiny. Uh, sort of torn up into in front of him, mm-hmm. and he has had presented to him someone saying, "Here is someone." Who will be receptive to you? Mm. But you have to make the move. You have to do something. It can be tiny. It's just all we're asking for you from you is a small gesture. Are you capable of that? Mm. And because he's Taika Waititi and he's insane, he ends the thing with a Michael Jackson thriller routine led by himself, but it's also the haka. Yeah. (laughs) It's really funny. It's wonderful. And all the kids are in the background doing the haka as well. And yeah. it's this reclamation. And then the girls come around the front and do poi. It's just... <laughs> it's cool. It's fan-fucking-tastic. Ricky Baker. He is a bad egg. A youth court regular. But we're hoping that this change of scene will help straighten him out. You hungry? That's a silly question, isn't it? Look at you. <laughs> Ricky Baker, now you are 13 years old. You are a teenager and you're as good as gold. Ricky, this is heck. You can call him uncle if you like. No, I can't. Father told me to tell you that you should give me something to do. Is there anything you want me to do? Yeah. Leave me alone. Cool. You ever been up in that jungle before? There's about a million hectares of it, buddy. It's easy to get lost. You lost? I'm amazed how lost you got. You little bastard! We got no choice but to camp out here for a few weeks. Where are you, Ricky Baker? More on this massive national manhunt. Faulkner is Caucasian. Well, they got that wrong because you're obviously white. You're going to jail, you pervert. What you call me? The pervert. So what do we do now? We run. No, we don't need to run. Oh yeah, this is fast walk. Gonna be rough, no huts, no tents, real bush life. And if you play up, I dump you. Okay, uncle. I'd still prefer if you don't call me uncle. Yeah, and I'll never stop chasing you. I'm relentless. I'm like the Terminator. I'm more like Terminator than you. I said at first you're more like Sarah Connor. And in the first movie too, before she could do chin-ups. Hunt for the Wilder People. 
a young Maori lad named Ricky Baker, played by Julian Dennison of Deadpool 2, abandoned by his mother from a young age, accruing a history of mischief and bad experiences, is handed over by Paula, played by Rachel House, a zealous social worker, to a new foster aunt and uncle who live on a remote rural farm. Bella Faulkner, played by Rima Te Wiata, who's a fantastic, funny Kiwi actress. She was in the gothic chiller Housebound, which is fucking hilarious, mainly because her sensibilities and her kind of uh, easygoing humour just kind of punctures any possibility of it ever being scary. It's great. It's, it's got a kind of a Shaun of the Dead flavour to it. Mm. She also uh, performed on stage as Audrey 2 in Little Shop of Horrors. Nice. She's a singer. Yeah. Either way, she's fantastic. Not in this film anywhere near enough, and her absence is really important. Yes, she is the second absent mother. Yeah. But yeah, Bella Faulkner starts out absolutely fantastic there, uh, even though she does immediately start uh, in, in a sort of a nervous way, kind of jibing, joshing with Ricky about his weight. And he's, uh, you know, he's a big, heavy kid. And she just can't stop talking about how much he might want to eat. But again, like I said, it comes through his nerves and just trying to sort of make him feel at ease by kind of busting his chops a little bit. Mm. So uh, if you can can get through that, uh, she's a very kind lady. I think what comes across as, uh, you know, being fantastic is that um, he runs away on the first night and she finds him the next morning uh, asleep in a cow pasture and uh, says, do you want to come and have some breakfast and then you can run away again later? Like, she's very easygoing about the whole running away. Like, yeah. she expected it and she's she deals with it in the best possible way mm. by being warm and kind, allowing him to run away as much as he wants and telling him that there is a home for him when he comes back. Yeah. It's really heartwarming. She has, what's the best way to describe it? She provides him with boundaries that are very elastic in the sense that they, it's clear that the boundaries will not snap, so he will remain safe within them, but he can push against them, which is clearly something that he needs to do. Yeah. His default has been in trouble for years, so... Being in a position where he will be forgiven repeatedly is new. Her husband, Heck, or Hector, is remote in many different ways. Uh, he, he spends most of his days out. He hunts. He brings back pigs. He's played by Sam Neill, who is also fan-fucking-tastic in this film. But he's also emotionally distant. Uh, Bella manages to break through Ricky's defensive shell by taking him out hunting, giving him a dog for his 13th birthday, which Ricky names Tupac after his idol, Tupac Shakur. Then, in a cruel, horrendous stroke of fate, uh, Ricky comes back to find Herc bawling his eyes out over Bella, who has fallen down, uh, hanging the washing out, and died on the spot. And their lives are completely changed suddenly. Uh, She had been the one who applied for the foster care, and Heck was kind of, I suppose coerced into it but unwillingly by her like, this is something was, she wanted to do it was good yeah. and he was he sort of went along with it so I, I think the the bureaucracy intrudes at this point because Bella was the only one whose name was on the application yeah. forms so Ricky cannot strictly speaking stay with Heck yeah 
He also, he hands uh, Ricky the uh, notice that he is about to be reclaimed by the social working services. Uh, and Ricky reads it. And you first off think it's some kind of odd power play. Like, uh, he's like, you know, you read your like, what's going to happen to you. But you later find that he cannot read. And that obviously stands hard in the way of um, of any like potential moving forwards with this since so much of this requires paperwork which is just beyond him he doesn't he's not really the per- sort of person who can do that and has clearly invested so much of himself in his wife to do key parts of his life that her not being there destroys him mm-hmm. I completely understand what that would feel like it would be not even ha- having a, a limb removed, like like basically having most of my body removed. I'd just be a head bawling, asking someone to kick me down the road if they feel like it, so I can get to places. You know, sometimes in life, it seems like there's no way out. Like a sheep trapped in a maze designed by wolves. And you know that if you're ever in that situation, there are always two doors to choose from. And through the first door, oh, it's easy to get through that door. And on the other side, waiting for you, all the nummiest treats you can imagine. Fanta, Doritos, Burger Rings, Coke Zero. But you know what? There's also another door. Not the Burger Ring door, not the Fanta door. Another door that's harder to get through. Guess what's on the other side? Anyone want to take a guess? Vegetables? No. Jesus? You would think Jesus. I thought Jesus the first time I I come across that door. It's not Jesus. It's another door. And guess what's on the other side of that door? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. He's tricky like that, Jesus. So let us pray. To Jesus, please make it a bit easier to get through those doors and to find you and your bounty of delicious confectionery. So Ricky takes matters into his own hands. He doesn't want to get handed back to uh, uh, count the council. So uh, he ineptly fakes his own suicide by burning down a barn. Uh, originally, he's just trying to burn a fake body of himself, which he's drawn a little face on. And just so he can fool people into thinking he's dead. And in doing so, he burns down Heck's barn. And he runs away into the bush with Tupac, where he is completely unable to cope and gets lost. Heck finds him easily, but breaks his ankle in a fall, forcing the two to camp for a period of time. The authorities, meanwhile, have found the house empty and the barn burnt down and come to the conclusion that the bereaved and mentally unstable Heck has abducted Ricky. A lot of the problems in this film are caused by Paula. Yes. She is, and I'll jump straight to that part of the uh, uh, questions, is there another key figure who has a positive or negative influence? Paula is like, in the absence of Ricky's actual mother, who uh, abandoned him, in the absence of Bella, who the Reaper cruelly took, becomes this overcompensatory superego parental figure who can't actually take care of Ricky herself, but is for damn sure going to get that boy back, even if it means killing him. Yeah. Well, she is, in a way, 
She actually represents the neglectful stroke abusive father figure because she is the arm of the authority and she constantly is backed up by Oscar, this totally laissez-faire police officer who really would prefer not to be involved in the whole thing. But between them, they represent the state. Yeah. And the state is taking the place of the... Like, Ricky's father, his real father, is never even mentioned. Like, he is so absent, he might as well not exist. But the the state and the children's homes he's been in and out of and the paperwork that has to be filled in whenever he goes anywhere new and this constant being moved around and being told if you don't pull it together we're going to stick you in juvenile uh, detention and then that's it you might as well just throw your life down the pan that's what Paula represents and yeah, to a degree, uh, there it's kind of uh, it, he represents this sort of neglectful, but like just leave them to it. They'll 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 get it it through on, on their own steam. They'll muddle it out, which is kind of a good way of like together. If she could just bring it down several notches, mm. they'd they'd find some way of of. of you know, being able to balance it out. But she overcompensates so much that she over-dramatizes this whole situation. And scenarios that could just be, you know, fairly easily cleaned up with some communication get smashed to pieces as she pursues them like Tommy Lee Jones in yeah. The Fugitive. Well, she totally misunderstands what her role is supposed to be in yeah. all of this. And in fact amusingly, has picked up on the phrase no child left behind, which she wields like a fucking threat. Like, you will never escape me. That's what she means when she says no child left behind. Yeah. <laughs> no child left behind. I will destroy you. But she keeps <clears throat> calling on Oscar to, like, shoot people and, and wield police brutality, and he's like, no, we don't do that. No. <laughs> And you can't do that. You're not a police officer. <laughs> yeah. Hector's uh, the uh, lost man for all the reasons I just said. He's mm. he's uh, lost in a way that one can only imagine a widower has to go through. Um, but he's uh, he was already lost and emotionally unavailable to begin with. So a lot of the film is about Ricky kind of busting through to him. Like, Ricky, to begin with, is not especially communicative either. Mm. But he is the most willing to, st to reach out his hands. Yeah. Well, to an extent, Bella has taught him yeah. to start opening up. And having started opening up, he is unwilling to close it all back down again. Yeah. She has that positive influence for just that short amount of time mm. that's just enough to get him on the right track. Yeah, and there is another... Uh, positive domestic influence that steps in about halfway through the film in the form of Kahu and her father, yeah. TK. Yeah. Uh, Ricky is trying to find help for a diabetic uh, ranger who has lapsed into a, a coma of some sort. Mm. And they Hex stays with him at the... the survival hut that they find him in and Ricky goes looking for help and finds this little farmstead and uh, Kahu is is riding a horse and, and he sort of reaches out to them for assistance mm. and while they are not especially um, well I mean her dad for a start appears to be mostly stoned most of the time mm. 
they're a very chill family, uh, very, again, relaxed and, and kind of, yeah, whatever, we'll sort it out. We'll sort it Do you out. want a sausage? Yeah. <laughs> he gets offered sausages seven times. Um, but they have this sort of, they give him shelter when he needs it. They give him support. They give him nurture mm. when he needs it. And at the very end of also the film... Also, he sees her like a girl in a flake commercial. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and she has to kind of bring him down to earth in a kind of a, hey... No, I'm I'm over here. You know, kind of uh, just be able to relate to him in a way from as a kid to another kid. Absolutely, but but they are also like at the very end when uh, Heck has to go into a, a care home for a little while, presumably because of his foot. But also because he he's got... suffered a mental breakdown yeah, throughout this movie absolutely. and needs to be rehabilitated. But Ricky by does adults not, and not just Ricky. Yeah, but Ricky does not end up going back <clears> into care, and he gets or... shot in the ass. By Ricky. <laughs> the incidents were related. Absolutely. Ricky doesn't end up going into uh, back into care or to juvenile detention because Kahu and TK take him in. Yeah. And uh, the, the resolution is that... Uh, by the way, Julian Dennison is such a fucking fantastic little actor. He... Uh, it, it, you can completely understand how he immediately then moved on to Daredevil... Always get. I always say that. I'm leaving that in. It's a private right. running okay. gag. I'm I, not even doing it on purpose anymore. I am going two to, red suits. I am going to place fifty pounds on if you ever get to interview Ryan Reynolds, you ask him what it was like playing. Dead what was it like playing? With? Well, <laughs> in Deadpool Two. They knew what the hell they were doing with him, and his rapport with Reynolds is absolutely fantastic. In Godzilla vs. Kong, they didn't know what they were doing with him. He was almost bigger than Kong. So they kind of just sort of like, we hired you because you're funny and quirky, and that's a misuse of him. Like, he should have been... Who did I say he should have been in recently? Like, just uh, we saw a film with a kid who was kind of boring, and I said, this really should have been Julian Dennison. Yeah, go through your... Um... It was Ghostbusters Afterlife. He should have been the Finn Wolfhard character. Uh, and like, he like, maybe not necessarily even the brother, but, like, he should have been there... As a Ghostbuster, like his energy was kind of what they were trying to get out of podcast. And, uh, you know, he did, he did fine. But Dennison would have been better. He has a, a combination. This was his first role. A combination of fragility, resilience, uh, seriousness and amazing comic timing and delivery. And he's the he's the soul of the movie. Obviously, once once Bella gets taken out, he has to kind of hold so much and uh, again, Sam Neill is sort of is unlike the other crappy father figures. He's a man who has only really passingly sort of agreed to this. Like he hasn't had the same level of responsibility conferred to him. And then the state came along and pretty much slapped him with red tape and took it away from him anyway. So he's been defeated in so many ways. So. There are many, many times when he could just give up and and uh, and just go, oh, fuck it, let the police take me. But he just seems to keep going with Ricky because that's something about the, the, you know, it's us against the world that Ricky's peddling um, that Ricky kind of grabs onto about this. And especially that makes perfect sense considering how fucked the system has been to both of them. Uh, it, it kind of... It's like a little magic carpet that sort of sweeps up Sam Neill's uh, heck and and kind of keeps this grizzled, gruff old codger going in just the right pace 
until this sad crunch of an ending, which again Ricky manages to resolve by extending a hand of um, encouragement and pretty much saying, you know, like what we did definitely wasn't great for either of us, but it was also extremely fun. And it did get us to where we needed to be. And ultimately, when it comes down to it, the Reaper decided to visit their tiny new little family and wreck it. And they managed to pull it back together together. Here's Marshal Jojo. You're our top man. Prepare to leave the house. Today, you boys will be involved in such activities as war games, ah! ambush techniques, and blowing stuff up. I don't think I can do this. Russ? Of course you can. When I was your age, I had an imaginary friend. Got me in so much trouble. Kids, it's time to burn some books. You're growing up too fast. Ten-year-olds shouldn't be celebrating war and talking politics. Hitler, I wish more of our young boys had your blind fanaticism. <laughs> Did you know Jews can read each other's minds? But how would you know if you saw one? They could look just like us. Hi. You know what I am? See? A Jew. Gesundheit. Sheesh, that was intense. What am I going to do? No idea. Got it! I will negotiate. Burn down the house and blame Winston Churchill. We'll negotiate. If I tell on you, you'll be in big trouble. They'll never win. Love is the strongest thing in the world. Your mother took me in. She's kind. She treats me like a person. You two seem to be getting on well. She doesn't seem like a bad person. I'm the enemy. You're not a Nazi, Jojo. You're a ten-year-old kid who likes dressing up in a funny uniform and wants to be part of a club. Nothing makes sense anymore. Yeah, I know. It's definitely not a good time to be a Nazi. In Jojo Rabbit, during the collapse of Nazi Germany in the fictional city of Falkenheim, a 10-year-old Johannes Jojo Betzler joins the Deutsches Jungvolk, um, Nazi scouts, German young people. Yeah. Uh, the junior section of the Hitler Jugend. Uh, heavenly indoctrinated with Nazi ideals, he has an imaginary friend, Adolf, a buffoonish Adolf Hitler, played by Taika Waititi. At a training camp run by Captain Klensendorf, uh, played by Sam Rockwell, he is nicknamed Chocho Rabbit after refusing to kill a rabbit to prove his furziness. He gets given this knife, and it's this totemic, like... Guillermo del Toro, you here is a knife for you to stab the people uh, with. Uh, and it's this thing, uh, it is exemplary of everything that he's being handed. He's rubbish with it, and it ends up only bringing hurt and harm. 
Pepped up by Adolf, he returns to prove himself, throwing a hand grenade which explodes at his own feet, leaving him scarred and limping. His mother, Rosie, played by Scarlett Johansson, who is becoming increasingly worried about the beliefs he is adhering to so fervently, insists to the now-demoted Klinsendorf that Jojo still be included, thus he is given small tasks like spreading propaganda, leaflets, and collecting scrap for the war effort. Alone at home, one day, Jojo discovers Elsa Kaur, a teenage Jewish girl, and his late sister Inga's former classmate, hiding behind the walls of Inga's attic bedroom. Jojo is both terrified of and aggressive towards Elsa. The two are left at an impasse as the revelation of Rosie's hiding of Elsa would lead to the execution of all three of them. Jojo continues to interact with her to uncover her... <clears throat> Jew secrets and makes a picture book called Yuhu Jew so he can expose the Jewish religion, allowing the public to easily recognize her kind. Despite this, he finds himself clashing with innocence and starts to form a friendship with her. Elsa is both saddened and amused by Jojo's beliefs, using surreal anti-Semitic canards to challenge his dogmatism. She exaggerates to the point where he begins to suspect I don't believe you, which begins to chip away at the foundations of his own belief system. Jojo slowly becomes infatuated with the caring and engaging Elsa, frequently forging love letters from her fiancé Nathan, and begins questioning his beliefs, causing Adolf to scold him over his diminishing patriotism. This is an unusual... Well, it's an unusual one for the, the four because it deals with something that was very real and has impact today as well as then. And in fact, is a compassionate contemporary example of where to put Nazis in our heads now. Uh, Bob Chipman did a really informative video on uh, how fucking nerdy Nazis actually are. All of the positive traits of being a nerd are pretty much expunged in favor of obsession with power fantasy. And he cited a, uh, a, a, a book written by an alternate history Adolf Hitler if he didn't get to be Hitler and ended up as a kind of a crappy sci-fi writer. You know, their obsession with the occult and their obsession with the pageantry and capes and, you know, wearing big hats. Paranoid delusional conspiracy theories getting together in large groups and shouting, destroying people. The film is not sympathetic to Nazis. The film is sympathetic to people who were in no position to escape from being indoctrinated by Nazis mm. and who were beguiled by the narrative of it. Yeah. The pasting over a reality with a version of reality that is complementary to you if you are in this club. Mm. And then, much like other cults, once you realise that things are not doing well, when you begin to fathom how deeply unhealthy everyone is, despite telling themselves and everyone around them on a daily basis that they are the champions of the earth, you're suddenly terrified to try to leave. It also makes it very apparent that once the Nazi party were in power in Germany, if you resisted them in any shape or form, you would end up dead. Yeah. It doesn't 
try to make definitive statements about resisting Nazis, aside from it's the right thing to do, and that doing so greatly increases your chances of dying. Scarlett Johansson's character of Rosie, when we first meet her, because we know Jojo, we just assume that she's sort of like, you know, doting mother going, oh, my little Hitler Jugend, and slowly you start to realise how afraid of her own son she is. And she's exemplified repeatedly by her shoes, which look way too jolly and fun for this kind of super oppressive atmosphere. And she's dressed in an almost 70s style. Again, it feels kind of Wes Anderson. And this is honestly, I think, Scarlett Johansson's best performance because she has to wrestle with so much internally. And in this case, rather than there being an absent mother, it's an absent father. And an absent daughter and sister in the shape of Inga. What she tries to uh, convey to him is subtly, again beguilingly, almost like she has to work around the cracks in these armoured walls he's built up around himself because he's he's convinced like, she mentions something along the lines of uh, love is the strongest thing in the world and he says no, 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 strongest thing in the world is steel followed by muscles you know, he's he's been told all of these, you know, the things about being an awesome dude if you're a Nazi and if you're a, if you're a female Nazi then you are definitely there to be taught about how to have babies she's just trying to sort of subtly work in this more bohemian freedom, beauty, truth, and love mm. philosophy to just not to directly challenge what he's got what he's got going because she's afraid he will actually report her to the Gestapo. Yeah. yeah. But she's trying with him. It is entirely clear that she cares about him. And you keep seeing her joke with him and, and, and she keeps walking into frame from way above. So we're at Jojo's level and we just see her, her shoes. Mm. Well, she doesn't seem... I, I wouldn't necessarily say that she's afraid of him, but she is afraid of what's being done. Oh, to she's him. definitely afraid for him more yeah. than she's afraid of him. But, but she's afraid of what he will potentially become yeah. if this continues along the track that it's on. One of the things that she keeps coming back to is that her favourite thing and her favourite form of expression is dancing. And I think this is why the focus on the shoes. She reiterates several times that she wants to be able to dance, but in the in Germany as it stands right now, no one can dance. And she is looking forward to a time in the future when they can dance again. And it keeps reinforcing that she does not believe that this is going to last forever. She's undercutting what he's being taught, which is that the Reich will go on and on and on. Mm. And he keeps being told this all the while, it seems that uh, the top brass don't know what the fuck they're doing. Everyone's afraid of Hitler. They're losing funds all the time. It doesn't mention it, but they're around about the point of uh, attacking Russia. Bad idea. Really bad idea. Just in terms of, like, marching on Russia and being really fucking cold and hungry. Because, I mean, Napoleon had been steaming in there, you know, 100 years before. I'm going to kill them, going to kill them. I'm going to go, oh, it's a bit cold, it's a bit cold. <laughs> <clears throat> right. Okay, okay, bad idea. Um, and then Hitler, I've got a better idea, got a better idea. Oh, it's the same idea, it's the same idea. It's the same idea. In the 30s, Hitler, Czechoslovakia, Poland, France, Second World War, Russian Front, not a good idea. Hitler never played Risk when he was a kid. 
And Hitler ended up in a ditch covered in petrol on fire. So that's fun. <laughs> I think that's funny. Because he was a mass murdering fuckhead. <laughs> and that was his honeymoon as well. Double trouble. Hey. <laughs> Ava, let's marry. And where should our honeymoon be? Well, in a ditch, covered in petrol on fire. That... <laughs> I've already arranged it upstairs. Oh, how romantic, Adolf. Yes, I thought. <laughs> and he was a, a vegetarian and a painter, so he must have been going, I can't get the fucking trees. Damn, I will kill everyone in the world. <laughs> he was a mass murdering fuckhead, as many uh, important historians have said. And, um, <laughs> but there are other mass murderers got away with it. Stalin killed many millions, died in his bed. Well done there. Pol Pot killed 1.7 million Cambodians, died under house arrest, age 72. Well done indeed. <laughs> and the reason we let it, them get away with it is because they killed their own people. And we're sort of fine with that. Now <laughs> oh, help yourself, you know. <laughs> We've been trying to kill you for ages, so you kill your own people. Oh, right on that. <laughs> Seems to be. Hitler killed people next door. Oh, stupid man. <laughs> After a couple of years, we won't stand for that, will we? This is from Augsburg, my city. So many people forget that the first country the Nazis invaded was their own. And the absent father is almost replaced by this imaginary friend, mm -hmm. by Adolf, yeah. who... His weakness, you know, we've had uh, just completely emotionally frozen and non-communicative. We've had uh, a boy man who's immature and won't take uh, his parental responsibilities seriously when they're clearly needed. We have a man who never wanted to be uh, even an uncle and loses everything all in one go and, and has to kind of find himself with this uh, other kid, but that it requires him to come out of a very hardened shell. And we've got this guy, Hitler, really, really wants attention. He yeah. wants Jojo to hile him all the time. Yeah. The, the irony, he needs Hiles. The irony of this character... He needs Hiles or he'll lose his mind. The irony of this character, as played by Taika Waititi, is the more I watch it, the more I think... This actually seems like a viable version of Hitler. Mm. <laughs> like uh, this egotistical, obsessive, dumbass, doesn't know what he's doing, making it up as he goes along, fool who somehow manages to get an entire country mm. to follow him. You could also call this Kids Fight Club. Yes. Yes, there is definitely an element of that, I think, going yeah. on. But again, it's As that in, sort of that masculinity. This is how we prove who we are, even though we're terrified inside. Um, uh, frankly, I think it conveys its meanings far more adroitly than the hallowed David Fincher's Fight Club. Oh, I agree. Because I think Taika Waititi is a better director than David Fincher. There you go. I, I said, said it. it. It had to be said. <laughs> also, I feel like people are not going to watch Jojo Rabbit and go, yeah, be a Nazi. Yeah, really not. Whereas a video turned up in my feed the other day uh, proclaiming that Fight Club was a warning to men. And I'm like, okay, this could go either way. Let's give it some time. 
And I realized really quickly that he hadn't got it when he started ranting about how the amount of estrogen that the government sneak into our food is turning men into women. Just ask this scientician. Uh. He'll tell you that an average 30-year-old man in 2022 has as much testosterone in his body as a 90-year-old Saxon. Tyler Durden. Um, yeah. But the, the one thing that it is... Tyler's got all the answers, you know. I believe he only sleeps one hour a night. Mm, yes. He's a great man. We're going to find him in a ditch on Covered fire. in petrol on fire. Um, uh, yeah, Jojo's father is... It's, it's mentioned that he is away fighting. Jojo assumes he is fighting on the side of the Nazis. Mm-hmm. It is hinted strongly that he is actually part of some resistance somewhere. I've seen this film twice and I thought his father had died. But I was just going to say, there is also the possibility that his father has been killed in combat and his mother just won't tell him. Yeah. And with the, I think, honestly, the hardest knife wrench of any of these films, Jojo's life comes crashing down when... Uh, after he spots his mother uh, leaving um, anti-Nazi propaganda around the place, he is on his way home to pester Elsa again for more information, and he comes across Rosie... He comes across Rosie's shoes on her feet, hanging, and you never see above the knees. It's just the most... devastating shot because everything about the film accommodates for Rosie continuing to be there and to be part of this world and everything about what happens to Rosie is carefully set up in the film illustrating that people are hanged in this town square we see her shoes enough times to make them very recognisable and we are given wordlessly all the reasons why this has happened and Jojo then has to deal with the aftermath of this. Now, we haven't really talked about him and Elsa, but it's almost a return to the uh, the, the, the nurturing uh, female force of Lily in the... Almost. It is a return to that for this lost boy from Eagle vs. Shark. Because the way she talks about her people seems to vacillate between uh, Borat levels of, oh yeah, my horns haven't grown in, not till I'm 21. And, uh, you know, just ridiculous superstition regarding, uh, you know, the, the, uh, her, the, the terrible magic powers that Jewish people have. Uh, but also just when she's given the opportunity to talk about how much stamina they have as a people and how they've managed to survive all manner of oppression over the years and how this is, let's face it, their fucking hardest hour. The actress is fucking amazing. Um, 
there's such a pride in her that she hold, is clearly holding on to and nurturing when Jojo's not interrogating her just to be able to get her through this because she's not hiding with family. She's in a cupboard in her dead friend's bedroom. And she's played by Thomasin McKenzie, who I would fully expect to have a very uh, lustrous career uh, for her bottled up performance. She's amazing. So when Jojo comes back after this horrendous loss, he tearfully staggers into the bedroom and starts to stab her in the most half-hearted way, just sort of like up in the shoulder and it, it, it goes in by like a, a millimeter and she just holds it firmly to prevent him from killing her or wounding her. And then he just drops and crawls away and she then goes on to become everything that will support him through this fucking nightmare. Mm. Because from that, that point on, it's just the two of them against the world. But as opposed to wilder people, it is hiding inside while all this shit goes on outside. Yeah. And what happens in that moment? Love overcomes steel and muscle. Mm. There's a reason I married you. Sam Rockwell is uh, getting quite a lucrative career uh, uh, as playing the Nazi, who's a massive racist, but you know, he's kind of a human being as well. He did that to very prestigious effect in uh, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. The whole, hey, let's let's ask about maybe racists. Yeah. They, they're, they're people too. <laughs> this is well-timed, right? Yeah. Um, but he plays a Nazi in this, but again, this, I think, is handled way, way better because it's it's rather clear that he's gay and he's hiding that. And uh, Alfie Allen, his his little mate, is hanging around him the whole time. Is you know they clearly care about each other a lot, and it's never spoken out loud, and you can't actually uh, challenge it. He also goes in for the whole pageantry thing. He wants a cape, but he's also a failure. Like he's been demoted from uh, being a, an army captain to looking after Boy Scouts. Then he gets demoted again and he's hanging around with Rebel Wilson, and she's like, someone has to walk the clones. And oh, she's so fucking funny in this. Oh. <laughs> High-fiving while book burning. It's the most chill. Honestly, I think if your sense of humor can occupy this black space, this is probably the funniest and saddest of the four. It's such a strange, series of extremes. It is worth it's noting. It's so pathetic and so sad. It is worth noting, by the way, that Waititi started developing this in 2011 mm. because he could see that right-wing bullshit was on the rise and he thought maybe something like this that gave younger people a look at Nazis that was not framed in... Uh, oh, wasn't the war dreadful, but it was ages ago, so we don't have to worry about it. Let's give awards for people saying that Hitler and the Nazis were a bad thing, and yeah. thankfully... And isn't we, it a good job? It's all we done. We don't have any more Nazis yeah. now. Um, so As opposed to making it feel really relevant. Yeah, so he wanted to, to do precisely mm. that. To Three years later, Game of Game. Yeah, and uh, after all of that stuff had already taken such deep root... Three years later, Trump that it's going to be hard to dig it out, 
They finally let him make it. Three years later, Jojo Rabbit. It always moves in threes. <laughs> yes. But yeah, uh, Sam Rockwell repeatedly is another kind of... He's almost like a, a an older version of what Jojo might have become. Mm. Uh, you know, going up through the ranks, kind of not being able to do what he wanted to do. He's this crumpled kind of loser Nazi yeah. who repeatedly saves Jojo's life. Yes. Yes, he does. And he's... He also saves Elsa's life when he is standing right in front of her and friendly Gestapo officer uh, Steve... Merchant. Steve Merchant comes round. There's a lengthy Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler gag, which is just <laughs> crucifying. And Elsa has to pretend to be the now dead Inga. Yeah. And Sam Rockwell examines her papers rather than letting her hand them to the Gestapo agent. It's also important to remember, folks, that Darth Vader was modelled on a Gestapo agent and he's on children's lunchboxes. Willow said, he's like the guy whose face melts off in Raiders. And I was like, interesting you should say that. <laughs> His name's Tot. No one ever knows that. Ron Lacey. Baby-eating Bishop of Bath and Wells. <laughs> you haven't any children, have you, blood No, I've never married. In that case, I'll skip breakfast and get right down to business. Anyway, back to Sam Rockwell. And he repeatedly diverts Jojo's course away from direct action violence and getting thrown into the uh, the firing line, especially at the end when the Americans are invading the city and shooting all the Nazis and the children and just villagers and German shepherds, it's a gag, are being sent out just, hot, here's a gun, you go and die for the fatherland. And that's really, the fatherland is who... Adolf is. He is the embodiment of the fantasy fatherland. Not really Germany, just the version of Germany that's been pasted over Germany by the Nazis. They've told Jojo about this fantasy world and he's allowed a part of his own brain to create kind of a older brother, father figure version of his hero. Mm. And that's who Adolf is in this. And everyone, like, uh, his, his his patter with the kids, fucking fantastic, just in terms of, like, the moment you start watching, you're like, Ugh, should I be laughing at this? Yes, it's important that we do laugh at Nazis. And at the same time, should I be crying at this? Yes, it's of even more importance that we understand these fuckers will ruin everything and they will fail. I said back in 2015, they're going to lose, referring to Immortan Joe and his war boys. And some people said on uh, YouTube, yeah, Trump just won. And then he lost. Just because the Nazis lose doesn't mean we also don't lose. If the Nazis win even just a little bit, we lose. And this kind of movie is there to illustrate, don't suffer a Nazi to do fucking anything. That dude who punched that Nazi that one time, who was talking about his rare Pepe, that's how you deal with Nazis. It's like, well, hey, wait, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Just because someone disagrees with you, does that mean you're a Nazi? If the thing we disagree upon is, it's okay to be a Nazi, then yes. They slowly move the goalposts and then it becomes, hey, just because I'm saying the things that people don't want to say about these immigrants and this group and the Jews, you know, that doesn't make me a Nazi. Until eventually they're basically doing tiki marches and they're the KKK Nazi party. It's all the same. 
It's all the fucking same. You can slap whatever word, whatever ethos you want onto it. It's the same state of mind of basically, ah, ah, ah. it's that as a party. It's a desperation. It's a desperate, like some strong dude, tell me who I can hurt it's, to make myself feel big. It's a desperation to belong at whatever cost, meeting that cost out on other people rather than accepting any kind of sacrifice yourself. Yeah. But the but this is the thing. Yes, eventually they will lose because sooner or later they're going to start eating each other. They cannot sustain the we're the best, we're superior until... Because well, the, they're obsessed with perfection. Exactly. And eventually they will It's not, just themselves hopping in a circle. And their propensity for moving the goalposts means that that version of perfection will keep moving until there's one dude left with really blonde hair exactly. and really blue eyes. Exactly. And it won't be Hitler. But No, it won't. Um, but yeah, He went ages ago. <laughs> in a ditch, covered in petrol. On, on fire, fire. <laughs> you Nazi shit. But eventually... Cake or death. Yes, they will lose. But that doesn't mean that... You don't fight them because they are going to cause so much damage in the process yeah. of losing that anything you can do to restrict the amount of damage that they get to cause is worth doing. It's like a child running around the place screaming and you're like, just let him wear himself out. If he's got a wooden board, he can do quite a lot of damage. If he's got a bag full of hand grenades, you should step in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. As I believe this film rather succinctly puts it. Yes. Oh, now this is my kind of little boy's bedroom. Oh, yes, there he is. You and your friends may have heard a rumor that Hitler only has one ball. This is nonsense. He has four. So you are volunteering at the Hitler Jugend office, yes? Yes. Oh, good for you. I wish more of our young boys had your blind fanaticism. What on earth are those oafs up to? Why don't we go upstairs and see, yes? Do you know where your mother is? No. I think she's in town. Has she been spending much time at home? She is quite busy. Is she? Well, I'm pleased to see that you're wearing your Jugend uniform, but where is your knife? You must always carry your DJ knife. Where is it? I left it. It's here. So how does this whole thing end up? Ultimately, the, uh, the, the Americans do uh, reoccupy, and um, there's another boy who actually does help out, his friend Yorgi, who's also in for all of this stuff, but illustrates, you know, I, I want to just be a, a help. That's all Jojo wants, is to help. So Yorkie's going around in this paper uniform, illustrating that the Nazis are not exactly flush for cash. And just doing, like, like, like little shows of work to, to make it look like the Zafazaland is still strong. Mm. All the while, while losing and imploding. But Yorkie doesn't have an evil bone in his body and is, an, again, illustrative of people swept up in all of this. 
not quite knowing what to do or what, what you know what's the best thing to do but in his own words it's not a good time to be a Nazi it's never a good time to be a Nazi <laughs> apart from when it seems like a new bunch of Nazis are going to finally get it right same idea it's the same idea it's the same idea that may possibly be the worst time to be a Nazi because it means you're about to fall down the whirlpool yes. again but yeah, Jojo wants to be of use so badly, and that's why he he's going around doing this stuff. And I think the the film blindsides us by making Jojo cruel in the middle. Mm. Like he actually starts to buy into this shit before Rosie is killed, before she's taken away, after his injury. There is a period where he is unkind to Inga. He messes with her head where he is unkind to Elsa repeatedly beyond the just, you know, keep away from me, Jew. Uh, And, you know, actually starts kind of mentally torturing her in a way that she can immediately see through. But it hurts her more that he's doing it. She remembers clearly that his sister was a decent person and that his mother is definitely a decent person. So she expected more from him. And ultimately what she becomes is, firstly, she's an object of fear and she threatens him with magic. And then she becomes kind of an object of fascination and then of infatuation. And the fake letters he writes her, which she sees through immediately because they're so poorly written... Uh, are also accompanied by lots of pictures of, of uh, you know, ways that Nathan, her uh, ex, who is almost certainly dead now, um, who was working for the Resistance. I don't know. But let's let's face it, he was a decent guy and was probably doing something mm. to try to stymie the Nazis. Uh, you know, ways that he can be eaten by ravening wolves and, and roasted over a spit. And just he's fantasizing about effectively supplanting Nathan and, and becoming her uh, boyfriend. But she kind of puts him in his place like that and, and, and says, you know, I'm, I'm way older than you and, and become more of an older sister. And then when his mother dies, she sort of takes on a little bit of the maternal energy there. But then during the montages which mercifully take us through their time inside, they become kind of just best friends and she's more of a mentor to him overall in the end. Just, uh, you know, she takes over Rosie's job of opening his eyes to the world uh, as to the things you've been told are very shallow lies. And at the end... He manages to hold the balance with Jojo. Again, the, the, the kid playing Jojo, Roman Griffin Davis, I hope has a, a fantastic career ahead of him as well because he is incredibly expressive, bottled up, passionate little boy. When the war is over, he lies to her and says she has to stay in the house. He, he, he makes the, the wrong decision mm. and then realizes that he has to do better than this. Adolf is also storming around the place with a bullet wound in his head because Jojo's been told that he shot himself. Adolf's like, take this red armband, go upstairs with your knife and finish off that filthy Jew. And this is what it develops into. He he does what he's supposed to do with this illusion of the fatherland that he's been fed. Hail me, come on, for old time's sake. Hail me, little man. No. Hail me. Come no. On, little hail, just a little hail. Please. Fuck off, Hitler. <laughs> he kicks him in the balls, propelling him out of the window, which is what you're supposed to do. Yeah, absolutely. And Hitler dies screaming, 
like, like a, a pig, pig in a wall. wall. <laughs> but then he goes upstairs and uh, uh, feeds a new story to uh, Elsa that they have to then they have to go on a journey through dangerous uh, uh, Nazi-occupied territory to get to the resistance. And it's kind of he's softening the blow as she gets down into the street and finds the Americans driving past and oh. We're returning to something approaching normality as people start putting their houses back together. And Germany gets to return to a time before the Nazis fucked it up. But it is manifestly, permanently scarred. Much like Jojo himself. A big part of why he did lie to her is that he's afraid that if he tells her the truth, she'll just run off and that's it. He'll never see her again. And he'll be all kinds of alone. Yeah. Absolutely. But then they they step out of the house and she very quickly realises that what he said is not true because there are American soldiers driving back and forth and flags flying that are not swastikas and, and all sorts of things that, that indicate that it's not as he said. So she slaps him. Which he absolutely has deserved multiple times. Absolutely. Uh, which he accepts with a good grace. And then... They don't really... They don't, I don't think they say anything else no. to each other. It's beautifully acted. They just start to dance. And the film begins with the Beatles singing I Want to Hold Your Hand in German when they uh, toured Germany. And it ends with David Bowie singing We Could Be Heroes in German. I do love how this film is not condemning of the German people. It's not throwing the whole nation under the bus because of the Nazis. They were a horrendous thing, this mutation that just developed, this cancer that grew in their midst and started taking in cells and infecting them and just fucking everything up and trying to control or kill everything it touched. And... I think that's true of most nations that are stricken with horrendous right-wing shitheads. It's, there's always going to be people who absolutely do not agree with this and are stuck in a very dangerous situation yeah. and are, have to decide what to do. There is always going to be this incredibly cruel, vicious, self-righteous element in any group of people the balance tips between the people who do those things, the people who let them happen, the people who won't let them happen, and the people who actively fight against them. Mm. And the, the balance is going to be somewhere along that scale. Mm. But if you're wondering what to do, scream fuck off Hitler and kick him in the balls. That's really the... Ideally out of a window. Out of a window. That is what this film really... I mean, like, you could just have shown those four seconds. Instructional video, how to deal with Nazis, in the balls, out the window. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And fuck, fuck off Hitler. School of Movies is entirely funded by Patreon. As of yet, after 15, I'll say that again, 15 years, just count them, we still don't do advertising. But we do like to say thank you. And our top tier $15 sponsors always get a shout out. So danke schön to 
Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Haskell, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Hayo, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skeels Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. We will be back very soon to talk about Taika Waititi's new film, Thor Love and Thunder. Bitte sehr und auf Wiedersehen. Ahui ho, mahalo, kakite, e nohora. <laughs>